Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to chapter 10, verse 8. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be here, wonderful to be together at St. Matthew's. Whose first time is this St. Matthew's together? Who's who's this is their first time here? Me too. It's wonderful to be here. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for gathering us together today at St. Matthew's. And Lord, we thank you for this precious time together in your word. And we ask that you might speak to us, to our minds, to our hearts, to every part of us, so that we we might respond to you with every part of us as well. Amen. A preacher came to a small town one day and wanting to mail a letter, he asked a young boy where he might find the post office. And when the boy told him, the preacher thanked him and said to him, If you come to the church tonight, you'll be able to hear me showing people the way to heaven. And the little boy thought about it for a moment and then very politely said, No, I don't think so. You don't even know the way to the post office. How can you show me the way to heaven? Showing people the way to heaven. Is there anything more important than that? Is there anything that people need more than that, especially considering how long heaven is for and what the alternative is. And yet, is there anything harder than that? Showing people the way to heaven, it ought to be the most natural thing in the world, and yet you know and I know it's not. But what would it take to change that in us? What would it take to make us as eager as the Lord Jesus to show people the way to heaven? What would it take to make us passionate, 
zealous, risk-taking, not afraid of rejection, desiring to see all people saved, showers of the way to heaven. Well, our passage today is going to help us because here we actually get to see what motivated the Lord Jesus to do what he did to show people the way to the kingdom of heaven. And the key is the way that Jesus saw people. Jesus saw people as a harvest. And so in verse 36, Jesus comes to a vast crowd before him and he has compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest fields. Each and every day before us, there is a vast crowd, spiritually lost people dying and facing a Christless eternity. They are our family, our friends, our neighbours, our workmates, our fellow students. And if we want to see them saved, we need to see them the way Jesus sees them. And Jesus sees them as a harvest. And in particular, he sees three things about them. Jesus sees that the harvest is precious, from verse 36. Jesus sees that the harvest is plentiful, from verse 37. And Jesus also sees that the harvest is perishing, in verse 38. And we'll talk about all those three things before we will draw the only conclusion that we can draw, that the harvest is our priority. And all those points are there for you in the outline that you got as you came in, along with our passage, and it'd be great to keep that open. Firstly then, the harvest is precious to Jesus. He has compassion on them, in verse 36. When Jesus saw the vast crowds that were before him, they brought a tear to his eye. All people then and now matter to Jesus. And that word compassion is a very strong word. It's a very graphic word. It's not somehow kind of a detached sympathy that he has for these people, motivating perhaps a a thoughtful tweet or a sympathetic post on a blog. No, it hits him like a physical blow to his stomach. It's the same word that's used to describe the feeling that the good Samaritan have when he saw that beaten and bleeding man. It's the same word to use to describe how the father of the prodigal son felt when he saw his son on the horizon. It speaks of deep, deep commitment and love. And Jesus knew that that crowds just like this one would soon scream for his death and for a murderer to be put free in his place. But as he looked at them, his first reaction wasn't condemnation for their sin, as much as that might have been deserved, but of deep compassion and love. He sees that they are helpless, harassed like sheep without a shepherd, meaning they have no king, they have no protector, they have no saviour. The shepherd's job was to protect the sheep from wild animals, to guide them into green pastures, to care for them. And God often describes the leaders of his people as shepherds. So in Numbers chapter 27, Moses actually prays for the people of Israel that God would raise up for them another leader like him so that they might not be like sheep without a shepherd. 
Or in Ezekiel 34, God's anger burns against the wolves in sheep's clothing, the leaders of his people, the false shepherds, who in fact devour the sheep and are no better than the wolves they are meant to protect the flock from. And there God himself even promises that one day he will come to be the shepherd of his people. And here now, the good shepherd, Jesus, sees the crowd and is filled with compassion for them. Like sheep are defenseless against scorching desert heat and are prey for the wolf and the lion, so too Jesus sees that these people are defenseless against sickness and disease and evil and death. They are prey for the human predators who would use them up and spit them out. They need his kind and kingly rule. They need the healing and restoring and forgiving power of his kingdom. Just as verse 35 reminds us. Now, tomorrow, when you see the crowd that's before you on the train, or the bus, or in the queue, or at the football game, or at the gate of the school, or on the news. When you see the crowd in your life, what emotion fills you? Because I know that my first reaction isn't compassion. And yet when Jesus saw them, when Jesus saw that generation, he saw them just like our generation today. He saw them living for pleasures and and paychecks and plaudits and and privileges. And yet he did not despise them for it. His heart went out to them. They were stressed and downcast. They were oppressed by the lies of false religion and by the spiritual forces of darkness in our world that promise freedom and yet deliver only greater and greater slavery. To Jesus, a life without his kingdom was so tragic, he was deeply moved, so much that he could feel it in his gut. Is that the way that we will feel tomorrow? Are the lost as precious to you as they are to the Lord Jesus? The great 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody was once visited in his hotel room in London by some rather snobby and arrogant Anglican clergyman. I know it's very hard for you to imagine an arrogant Anglican clergyman, isn't it? But these three said to to Mr. Moody, you've come to London, you have no education of which to speak, your English is terrible, he was, after all, an American, your sermons are very simple And yet thousands are converted at your rallies. And we want to know, how do you do it? And as the story goes, Moody walked over to the window of his hotel room and he opened it up and he said, what do you see? And one of them said, I see children playing in the park. The other said, I I see a couple enjoying a walk in the afternoon sun. And the third, sensing that perhaps they were missing the point, said, what is it that you see, Mr. Moody? And his biography says that as he stood there looking out of that window, a great tear began to roll down his cheek into his beard. And he said, I see thousands upon thousands of souls who will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Saviour. Perth is full of people. 
Perth is full of people who look like they're going places. Perth is full of people who look like they've already arrived. They think that the pleasures of sin are worth more than the treasures of Christ. They think that true freedom is found outside of Christ rather than in him. And when Jesus looks at the crowds then, when Jesus looks at the crowds now, he is not fooled by the smiles on the faces or the cheerful greeting in the street. He knows that even if they gain the whole world, they will still forfeit their soul. In reality, they are sheep without a shepherd. People who desperately, desperately need their king and who are precious to him. And we need to see them like that too. But the second thing that we need to see is that the harvest is plentiful. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. I hear the metaphor changes from flocks and sheep to fields, to harvesting a crop. To the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they saw the common people as chaff to be destroyed and to be burned up. But Jesus saw them as a harvest to be reaped and to be saved. The Pharisees, in their pride, looked for the destruction of sinners. Jesus, in his great love, died in the place of sinners for their salvation. And so it's wonderful to hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that the harvest of future Christians is abundant and plentiful. It's so easy to assume that the glory days of the church, the golden days, are somehow long behind us. And we all know how difficult proclaiming Christ can be in our our current climate and culture. The opposition seems to build constantly. There is now an enormous pressure on all who follow Jesus to remain silent rather than to unashamedly testify to Christ. And one of the first things that someone said to me as I arrived here in Perth, they said the ground is very hard and that trying to find a harvest here is like trying to plough concrete. And the truth is I've said much the same thing myself. And yet none of this is new. From the very beginning, Christians have faced such pressure. Need I remind you how the story of Jesus' proclaiming turned out? And yet the Lord Jesus has his people. The Lord Jesus is building his church. He is the one who will ensure that on the last day there will be countless millions from every tribe and tongue and nation and language gathered around the throne in worship. And so look again at verse 37 and see where the problem lies. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, Jesus locates the problem not in the world, but in the workers. There just aren't enough laborers in the field. What's stopping the harvest from coming in? What's limiting the growth of Jesus' kingdom? Wealthy Western hearts unresponsive to God's word? Jesus says, no. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. It's the lack of people going out into the world to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
It's giving in to the pressure to remain silent when we should speak. Yes, the ground is hard, but the plough is sharp. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating even to the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And the word that goes out from the mouth of the Lord never returns empty. Isaiah 55, 11. Now, if we take Jesus at his word here, we must assume that actually today people are just as responsive to his word as they have always been. And that it is the privilege of all those who follow Jesus to be workers in his precious harvest field. We need to not just see the preciousness of people to Jesus. We also need to see how plentiful the harvest can be if we were all workers in it. But we also need to see that the harvest is perishing. There is always a sense of urgency to bringing in the harvest, isn't there? Every farmer knows this. Wheat left too long on the stalk, if reaping is delayed, or or fruit left too long on the vine or, or too long on the tree. Well, eventually it withers and falls to the ground. Or the scavengers come and take it away. Or perhaps the weather turns bad and, and wipes out your crop. If harvesting is delayed, then the harvest is in jeopardy. And Jesus has take, chosen his metaphor here very, very carefully to give us that sense of urgency. Now, I don't want to scare you with numbers. Not when every life lived and every death died without Jesus is an eternal tragedy. But you know the urgency. You all have people in your life that you love dearly, that you want to come to know the Lord Jesus dearly. And you know that their time is perilously short and could be cut shorter at any moment's notice. It has been said that the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. And we are living in desperate times, and desperate times call for desperate actions. And so it's fascinating to me that the first action Jesus insists on is prayer. Verse 38, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus doesn't say, the need is great, therefore go. He will get to that. But firstly, he says, the need is great, therefore pray. Earnest prayer. Sustained prayer. Persistent prayer. Not the half-hearted request of someone who doesn't much care for the outcome but the fervent pleading of your children when they've seen the snack that they want, they've seen the treat they feel they deserve. Persistent, humble prayer to God that he would send out more workers into his harvest field. And Jesus' command here is that we give ourselves to such prayer. And here is a thought. Could we give ourselves to just two minutes a day to pray for God to send workers into the great harvest. Two minutes, a quick prayer of praying and pleading with God to send out more harvesters. 
And if we all did that, and if all of God's people in Perth did that, I think we would be staggered by the results and what stories we would be able to tell to each other next year when we came together. More like the ones that we heard today, I imagine. And when we pray like this, it's very encouraging to know that we are praying to the one that Jesus calls the Lord of the harvest. This is the God who has his people. This is the God who is calling people to himself by his word. This is the God who can do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. This is the one whose power is great and whose compassion is greater. And so the prayer of the disciples is for workers. But then Jesus does something very unusual, doesn't he? Jesus also follows up his command to pray for more workers by saying to all those who follow him, go. They, in a sense, become the answer to their own prayer. Because Jesus knows that where there is prayer, there will be mission. Jesus knows that where there is prayer, it will be impossible to remain blind to the needs of others. It will be impossible to remain silent. And the mission that Jesus sends them on in Matthew chapter 10 It's only a a very short and specific mission, but it makes the point and it anticipates the great commission that he will give after his death and resurrection. The wonderful words of Matthew 28, where he will say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The harvest is precious. The harvest is plentiful. And the harvest is perishing. And therefore there can be only one conclusion. The harvest is our priority. As a church and as individuals. The great invitation of this passage is to feel as Jesus feels. He is overwhelmed by his love for people as he sees the vastness of the crowds and the sense of urgency in reaching them. And so should we. So what can we do? Well, we can pray, can't we? When we begin to see people as Jesus saw them, we will begin to pray for the harvest. We will pray for the salvation of the lost. We will pray that God will grow our church. We will pray for our church to be the trainer of harvesters, for men and women to go into the harvest. We will pray for workers. We will pray for laborers. We will pray for servers. We will pray for givers. And we will pray for opportunities. We will pray for the people who are around us, the people that only we know. And so we must do more than just pray. We will also go. When we see people as Jesus sees them, we will go into the harvest field as a willing worker. And sometimes that go is very physical. Sometimes we have to go to the other side of the room to actually speak to that person, maybe even for the first time. Or maybe we have to go and visit someone, or maybe we have to to go to school to teach scripture, or maybe we have to to go to that other city on the other side of Australia. Or maybe we even have to go to that other country even. 
so that we might speak of the Lord Jesus and the salvation only found in him. But sometimes the goal isn't physical. Sometimes it's more relational. Sometimes we're already there. It's just we have to now speak of Jesus. We have to go there in the conversation. Uh, we have to bring up the topic or we have to go there in, in our relationship with someone. You know, begin to speak about more than just what happened on the weekend or the everyday things like work and family or the common interests we might share. We have to be those people who speak about spiritual things, who speak about life and death, who speak about justice and mercy, who speak about God. To show people the way to heaven, we have to go. And as we go, your own story of how Jesus saved you Your testimony is your greatest asset. If for no other reason than it's easy to remember. And precisely because it is your story. And as we go, we don't go alone either. The Lord is with us. And we are with each other as well. We are a church full of opportunities, full of people ready and willing and eager to share the gospel with whoever you might bring to a party or whoever you might bring to church or, or to an event or anything that we might do. And there is a whole world of us exploring how we can do this great mission of Jesus together. But if we see the harvest as Jesus sees the harvest, we will pray. And then we will do as Jesus commands us to do. We will become the answer to our own prayers. We will go. And where I and where we are reluctant, I can only conclude it's because we do not see the harvest as Jesus sees the harvest. Let me finish with this. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, He once talked about evangelism like this. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. And in that ocean I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. And then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean A mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this rock I saw a vast platform. And onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor struggling drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. But as I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. And they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employment. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. Though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. It seemed that the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. They were so taken up with their trades and professions, their 
money saving and pleasures, their families and circles, their religions and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from the sea. And if they did not hear it, they did not heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude kept on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. My friends, all humanity is drowning. Sinking down into the great sea of sin where once we struggled and shrieked until we were rescued by Jesus. And because we have been rescued, we can be a rescuer. Or more accurately, we can point our way to the rescuer, to Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. The harvest is precious. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is perishing. And the harvest is the priority of our church and all who are part of our family. And so I say to you, St. Matthews, go and make disciples and surely he will be with us always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has saved us and made us one of your people, that we might now have you as our great King, that the Lord Jesus might be our shepherd. But Lord, we pray that we might see the crowds around us as Jesus sees them, as you see them, Lord, as a harvest, precious and plentiful and perishing. And so, Lord, we pray that we might pray, that we might be earnest in our prayers, pleading with you, Lord, send out more workers into your harvest field. But we also pray that we might answer our own prayer, Lord. We pray that we might go, that we might go and make disciples, We pray that in each and every one of our lives, you might give us opportunities, opportunities to to speak of you, opportunities to invite, opportunities to share our testimony of what you have done in our life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that by doing this, that we might see that great harvest come in, a great harvest of righteousness and of glory to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.